0: And welcome to Season 2, Episode 36 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast, brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, And I'm joined today by my colleague, uh, John. John Goodall, how are you doing today, John? I'm ill. Mm. Well, That's I passed the, the baton. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we have uh, established that COVID cannot be transmitted uh, via the internet. Uh, because <laughs> I was ill last week with COVID. URL this week but it's not covid so we've definitely not transmitted the virus over the wire
1: Yeah, that would be really concerning wouldn't it
0: yes that uh, covid is now more than airborne it's actually internet born as well that would be uh, yeah that would be rather worrying um, but uh, i'm sure there's a lot of virus uh, in my shed you know all over my monitor and my uh, my pop filter and things like that but uh, thankfully you won't be going anywhere near any of that so uh, i'm sure you'll be fine so, do you think no, you're going to be able to I make half an to. hour? You I'm made half need, an hour without swearing. With plugs, am I? <laughs>
1: half an no. hour without coughing. Um, That's that what I was going to we'll ask. See. Yeah, can
0: you do half an hour without coughing? <laughs> and he's muting no, to cough now. No, I can't. So uh, the answer to that question is no. Uh, so let's see if he can manage 29 minutes without coughing. Um, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about our respective health. Um, as you'll know, if you listen to the podcast every week, I collate. A list of AWS news, which I share via my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I pick a selection of articles that we would like to take a little bit of a deeper dive on in the Logicast podcast. So we've got such a selection of articles this week, so let's dive straight in. And the first one um, is uh, has been reminding me of one of the uh, soundtrack songs from... Um, Top Gun, the first Top Gun movie, um, and uh, it's Data Zone. You're probably wondering why, but I just got Highway to the Danger Zone in my head uh, when thinking about Data Zone. So here we are with the Highway to the Data Zone. Uh, AWS have launched Data Zone into general availability. Of course, it was announced at reInvent last year in preview, uh, and they've managed to get it into GA before the next reInvent, which is always good. Um, So uh, John, what can you tell us about data zone? How is data zone gonna help customers with their data? I think it's showing your age primarily from highway to the data zone Mm. Uh, but i'm sure everyone has watched the old top gun movie because the new top gun movie came out this year was it or last year Uh, i think maybe last year year. Uh, so i'm sure everyone had to watch it and i'm sure everyone still loves highway to the danger zone (laughs) or the data
1: zone Mm. interesting so data zone yeah so released into preview last year It was mentioned in the various summit keynotes this year as well, presumably just to kind of keep the focus on it and to be able to talk about something that wasn't generative AI because that was just the primary focus. But let's talk about something that isn't gen AI. Let's talk about data Um, because, you know, serverless and and servers are dull. So let's talk about something else. Um, So, yeah, it's still plenty of press coverage between last year and now just because it kind of keeps doing the cycles every so often. Right. What is it? Well, there's four bits. There is the data portal, which lives outside of the AWS management console, much like um, Amplify as well that lives outside the console. So this is one of those cool little services that you can give your data access, uh, data analysts access to without them having access to AWS proper, which is great because you don't want your data analysts in the same place that you know, servers are provisioned or or firewalls are looked after and those sorts of things. And it also makes your life doing permissions a lot easier because the number of people that are going to need access to data portal is probably quite a lot lower. It might be quite a lot higher, but it's a different set of people that's going to need access to AWS proper. So that's good. It's nice. And you don't have to go and explain the somewhat unintuitive AWS console. It's go there. Great. We like that. Um, What that's doing is it's it's still authenticating with IAM, but it's, you know, it's going through a different route. That's the the view. That's how you interact with it. It has a business data catalog, which is very much what it says on the tin. It's here's all the data in your business. It's cataloged. Brilliant. You probably have to do quite a lot to do that yourself, but that's kind of there. There's data projects and different environments. So you can work on, you know, much like any other software development project. Uh, Data projects will need test environments and dev environments and kind of all the rest of it, which is fine. And then governance and access control and managing permissions to the underlying data stores like Lake Formation, like Redshift, like whatever. So that's kind of what it is and how it does it. It's a a way of interacting with your data as a business from across your entire AWS estate in a platform and a portal that lives in AWS, but you can access it from outside of AWS. Lovely. Excellent. I did think the interface looked quite a lot like the Athena query interface. Um, I've been using that a lot lately, so it's kind of on the brain. You look at it, and they've gone, they've taken some design cues from the Athena interface there because, I mean, it's doing fundamentally the same thing. You're writing SQL queries, so it kind of makes sense that they've just used that same interface. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not a data guy, so it's just one of those. This is GA, and we should talk about it being GA. But if you do quite a lot in your in the data space as a business which i imagine more businesses should be than are if we're realistic about this um because lots of businesses you know retail hospitality and all the rest of it will have this sort of data and maybe they're not doing anything with it because they are just focused on the day-to-day grind of getting the job done um but if you have data that you need to be interacting with and, and making decisions on then this is another tool that you can use to do that I'm not sure, however, that this solves, and I'm pinching an opinion here, but I'm not sure that this solves a problem that actually existed. Because this has only been in GA for days, and it's only in preview for a little under a year. But people that have had this need have had this need forever. So they will have been using other tools to do this. They will have been using, I don't know, Tableau or QuickSight or microsoft business central or power bi or whichever one it is uh, those sorts of things you know they will have been using external tools to get the job done so is this a case i think of aws going as they do occasionally here's a need that our customers have that we're not meeting we should build a tool to meet that need directly so that they're not spending money somewhere else
0: Hmm. very possibly very possibly Um, rather unusually as well for a a, a GA announcement. It does actually go on to give you a step-by-step guide. That would normally be a separate blog post but uh, this this post does actually go on to give you a step-by-step guide on how to set yourself up on DataZone, creating a domain and so on and so forth. So if you are listening, you do want to give it a go, uh, check out the post. The link will be in the show notes and there is a a step-by-step guide with screenshots to walk you through uh, setting up your first DataZone project. So um that was the highway to the data zone let's uh, segue into our next article uh, which is all about building arches uh, if you look at the picture some lovely arches i don't know where they are they look like they're perhaps in italy or somewhere uh, where uh, architecture uh, is uh, somewhat more grandiose than it is in the uk um <laughs>
1: You mean you don't like old Victorian viaducts?
0: Yeah, I knew that that might uh, be a, a you know a, a debatable point. Uh, I guess it depends on one's uh, personal preferences. But uh... what about the
1: aqueduct? Okay, now like at <laughs> my age, but there we go.
0: Funnily enough, I think uh, it must be an age-related algorithm on Facebook because uh, I'm seeing lots of pictures of long boats at the moment, and I did see a uh, no, sorry, narrow boats, not long boats. Completely different thing. So longboats is uh, uh,
1: the Viking thing.
0: (laughs) Yes, indeed. No, I'm talking about canal boats, basically. And uh, I do get uh, some lovely aqueducts and things like that appearing in my Facebook feed for some reason. I have no idea why. Um, But uh, this has got nothing to do with uh, Vikings or canal boats. Uh, This is uh, or arches, in fact. It just happens to have arch in the title, and uh, perhaps uh, the image was selected by generative AI, uh, because in this particular article, Arch is just an abbreviation for architecture. So it's an article on the new stack, um, which is the insider's guide to building a multi-arch, read multi-architecture infrastructure. And what it's actually talking about uh, is building uh, apps that will run on different CPU architectures, as I understand it from my quick scan of reading it, and it's uh, it's by Cheryl Hung, uh, who of course works for ARM, uh, who are a manufacturer of CPUs. No, CPU not. manufacturers? No, they're not. Uh, uh, they okay. Go on then. They are a a provider
1: of CPU reference architectures. Architecture. Yeah, basically yeah, they yeah. don't actually make anything they provide okay. reference designs for other people to make so yeah. people like aws make this is where you've got loads of people making their own silicon on arm because mm. arm um license the designs as i understand it they don't make anything
0: yeah thank you for clarifying that for me um but uh yeah t- tell us a bit more about it then anyway the point was it was about it was the article was by cheryl hung who works for arm um, but it's uh, the article, as I understand it, is about build, building apps that will run on ARM and x86 infrastructure.
1: Well, yes and no. It's not building apps that will run on both. It's looking at whether, and that is part of it. But it's looking at migrating your infrastructure from x86 to ARM for the aforementioned you know price performance that AWS love to bang on about. So I mean it's it's a fairly long article it's very well written it's long so you you know you're you're in for a good minute there as Uh, long as your arm (laughs) but um we need to get sound effects on this because that was that was great
0: i didn't even prepare that one in advance
1: no i can tell But yeah, it talks about, you know, why you'd want to do it. It's price to performance, which is the first one. And we've said this a lot as well on previous like ARM announcements and things when Graviton's got a third version come out and, and what have you, is that's kind of always the, the touted benefit is ARM largely runs cheaper and largely performs better. So those things aren't always true depending on the workload, but your price to performance ratio gets significantly better. It's like 50% better than equivalent x86 hardware because just how the system's set up which is great um and then it talks about why you'd want to have the option to run on both so this is the choice this is flexibility um because it's it's very much a meet your customers where they are depending on your app it might not always be appropriate but meet your customers where they are um, and then there's you know how you go about migrating it and and things that you need to consider because it's not just where you're running your app it's how you're building your app where you're building your app and and those sorts of things and then there's a process it's you know it's inform and optimize and inform and optimize and go around in that circle so you inform you optimize you operate you inform you optimize you operate and you go around and around and around and around. And around. And then obviously they, they do a couple of case studies, which is kind of why it's such a long article, and then they say that, oh, we've done it ourselves, we are, you know, eating our own dog food, which you kind of expect them to do. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one, it's definitely something that I've, um, I've not run multi-architecture applications before, but I've run multi-architecture environments before, so... This is more microservices based, but where you'd have like a chain of lambdas doing something, or a step function that's calling a bunch of lambdas, where eighty or ninety percent of them is running are running on ARM, and then the odd one is to running on x86 because it's either cheaper, or or there wasn't a dependency that worked on ARM or something of that nature. So it's it's something I have a little bit of experience with, and it's definitely worth um, sort of considering, primarily from my perspective, from the um, cost um, and performance reasons, not so much the flexibility, but then, you know, my bias is back end. Like it doesn't, I don't, I don't care where the customers are. They're coming to me back end.
0: Cool. Nice little, uh, sound bite in here from Danilo Puccia at AWS that 48 of the top 50 Amazon EC2 customers use Graviton processors for their workloads. I would imagine that's not exclusively. Uh, I would imagine they are using a mixture of X86 and, uh, arm-based Graviton. Um, but uh, that's a pretty decent adoption there. 48 of the top 50 customers already using it.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a not a small number, and I don't I don't see that changing realistically because if you look at Graviton one versus equivalent x86, it was 30, 40% better. Graviton two versus one, it was 20 or 30% better than Graviton One. It just kind of keeps going. So there's no logical reason not to at least investigate. Using ARM, Fair the enough. article as well does talk about Kubernetes because you read an article about ARM, you've got to talk about Kubernetes. It's it's like bad juju not to talk about Kubernetes. What does it say about Kubernetes? It's it, it almost mentioned in passing. It doesn't really go into great detail, but it, it talks about you know is is your your retail application or whatever it was and um, your Kubernetes thing that's running your retail application, which in our experience, largely they're not running on Kubernetes, they're running on EC2, largely, but that's by the by. And then, you know, you can upload your control, you can update your control plane ahead of updating your nodes so that you've got some of the benefits of running it a little bit cheaper, a little bit more cost-effectively or whatever, without having to completely re-architect your system to take advantage of it. So, yeah, that's a thing, because Kubernetes being what it is, it makes everything more complicated just to, I don't know, validate its existence
0: and there is a, uh, a wonderful subheading towards the end of the article, Dog Fooding Arm on Arm, uh, which uh, is obviously about Arm eating their own dog food and uh, having migrated most of their own uh, or a lot of their own infrastructure uh, onto Arm based CPUs in the cloud. But I just thought it was worth reading that one out Dog Fooding mm-hmm. Arm on Arm. It's a lovely bit of prose there. Um, so, uh, anyway, let's move on uh, from uh, Arches. Uh, into bedrock and uh, I know how much you love talking about AI John because everybody's talking about AI you chose this article so we're going to have to talk about AI Um, Mm -hmm. AWS are throwing money at AI at the moment obviously there's a huge uh, land grab going on in the generative AI space some say AWS playing catch up to Microsoft etc with the the whole uh, Chat GPT and uh, investment in um, open AI, um, but uh, certainly I know from personal experience there's uh, a lot of credits being made available um, to AWS customers at the moment for anybody that wants to try anything to do with generative AI, um, but uh, obviously we mentioned on the podcast recently that uh, Bedrock has recently been launched into general availability, but um, this particular article uh, is on ZDNet. Um, And it just asked the question, what is Amazon Bedrock Uh, and offers four ways it can help businesses to use generative AI tools. So let's shed a bit more light on it, John. What is Amazon Bedrock?
1: I'm just going to take a little bit of exception to your pronunciation there. It's ZDNet because it's an American website.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say Bedrock. It's quite difficult to mispronounce <laughs> Bedrock, uh, but yeah, uh, I've never heard it called ZDNet actually. But I suppose that is how Americans would say it. I've just never heard anyone mm-hmm. say it out loud. So um, yeah, but that's we are an international. Tradition. We're an international podcast, much- so uh, let's call it ZDNet.
1: I mean, that's very much a problem, right? If you've only ever seen a word written down.
0: Yeah, yeah, how do you know how to pronounce
1: it? Yeah, exactly. So So yeah, Carl's pronunciation aside, what is it? Well, it's AI as a service, it's generative AI as a service, which is great because AWS have had a bit of a history and I think saying that they're playing catch-up is unfair because they've been playing in the AI space forever, like for ages. I think they're playing catch-up on this one in the media cycle and only in the media cycle because the fact that they were talking about it Um, you know, back in May or whenever it was, and then went um, limited preview kind of in the the summer, and now they've gone GA now. They've been working on this for ages. So I think they're only playing catch-up in the media cycle, which is probably why the original announcements way back felt a bit half-baked because it was, oh, we've got to put something out to talk about it, and now this is kind of what it's going to look like. So this is going to generate a lot of media cycles for a little while, just because of the nature of the beast. But right, so... It is AI, generative AI, more specifically, as a service. Great. There is an endpoint. I'm very annoyed I didn't get to see the demos at London um, AWS On Tour events because it hadn't gone GA just yet. So if you went to the event in Barcelona or in uh, Lyon, I'm very jealous of you. I'm very jealous. Because you could get a proper demo and I couldn't. It's just unfair. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's what it is. Um how, and the article is kind of talking about how what's the what's the business benefit as opposed to what it is, and they're they reasonably informed opinions. I think it's you know democratizing AI because you don't have to have these giant GPU farms and server farms and racks and racks and racks of kit to train your models to get some sort of business benefit out of an LLM or, or generative AI or generally because they've kind of done that. You just use it, brilliant, which is also kind of the benefit of their other AI. As, a, as an API, if you like, like recognition and what have you. You just kind of use it. Yeah, the price itself isn't massively cheap at hyperscale because you pay per thousand and it's, it's like a couple of bucks per thousand or something for recognition. Um, and this is likely to be similarly priced. Um, so it's not cheap at really high scale, but for people just kind of getting into it, playing with it, using it, working out how they can kind of make it work for their business, The pricing is good enough that you can experiment without breaking the bank and having to buy big GPUs and hire engineers and kind of all the rest of it. So that's good. We like that. The next one, cost-effectiveness, time is money. Um, So in addition to obviously having big, powerful kit, be that either ARM processors or graphics cards, more traditionally, which actually run ARM processors, shockingly, um, to train your LLMs, you don't need to do that because... Um, they've kind of already done it because there's two elements of that. There's paying for it, and then there's the time taken to train the model. You know, this model took X amount of hours or days to train. Um, you haven't had to sp- spend that time sitting there with it going through all of the various bits of training data, learning the training data. I mean, you find this in the in the deep racer um, leagues and things. Is that how long, How much time did you spend training your model? Oh, nine hours, twelve hours, and that's just for a little piddly racing car that goes around a track. Right. And that's, that's two business days, realistically, of training time. That's, well, if you want to be able to get actual business benefit rapidly, you don't have the time to spend doing that, which is why AI as a service is quite so powerful as it can be. And also things like ChatGPT, it's AI as a service. It's just, it's kind of come to the fore because the the freebie version that's open to the public is, you know, is pretty good. Uh, and the next one is making it easy to customize your AI. So they have their um, baseline models that you can then build on top of. So you don't have to use their baseline model, but you can kind of take that model and then do your own training on top of that. Um, it's not training. I think they call it. I think there's a, there's another word for it. It's, it's refining or something of that nature. Um, so again, it's one of those, they've done the hard work. You can then refine the model based on your supplementary data. Um, so, you haven't had to go through all the pain of getting the baseline in and you can just kind of tweak it towards the end, which is great. And then speed to market, because again, it's already kind of there and it's done. It's kind of three things talking about how long these things take to, um, to do anything and become useful because, you know, it can be weeks to train these things properly. And I suspect bedrock has been months of training. Uh,
0: if not years, <clears throat> the, uh, the models that are behind it. Yeah. So, um, Cool. Okay. Well, I'm conscious of time. So let's skip on from Bedrock. And I hope that you get to see your demo sometime soon, John. <laughs> um, I'm sure there'll be a video or a reinvent session that you can stream on Bedrock um, to get up to speed. I did say um,
1: a session come through on the community builder thing. That'll be NDA'd probably, but it's a GA service. So I'm not sure, but I'll probably yeah. go
0: to that. Cool. Well, I'll look forward to hearing your feedback once you've been. So let's uh, move on to, I think, my favourite headline for this week is our friends at elridge <laughs> Edge. Uh, always, uh, always good for a, a comedy uh, IT news headline. Um, this one, uh, I'll read it out word for word. AWS stirs the mad pot, busting bot baddies and eastern espionage. Brilliant. I mean, you, you just have to read the article just to understand what the hell's going on because there's, there's enough to unpack in the headline alone, let alone the article itself. Um, but, uh,
1: yeah. Um, it's almost this, like uh, it's been written by a Gen Z, Gen Z, Gen Z, because they're talking about spilling the tea. Like That's really yeah. super modern <laughs> slang, that. And honestly, <laughs> in the UK, spilling your tea is a crime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this article is all about... Um, the unveiling of MadPot, uh, which was a previously secret um, threat intelligence tool used by AWS uh, as a honeypot, I guess, um, to attract cyber criminals. So tell us a bit more about this one, John.
1: So traditional format, let's do a little bit of definition first. A honeypot is its like an obvious target. If it's, it's kind of what it says on the tin, which is a bit weird for security tooling, but it's kind of like what it says on the tin. If you put a big pot of honey honey being the um, obvious example, but, you know, it could be sugar water or or a donut or whatever. Out in the middle of the field, all the insects in creation are going to go over there and not come and nick your sandwiches because you're having a very depressing picnic out of a lunchbox because you're poor. Okay, now I'm just projecting. Um, (laughs) um, But that's kind of the idea, right? You put, and it's like those insect catches and things that you see as well. They've got like a bit of orange juice or whatever in them. You've put something somewhere else for the insects to go to. And this is the same sort of concept for um, bots and cyber traffic and all the rest of it that you kind of don't want to get into your applications. You make a nice big obvious prize over here and they go over there and your honeypot just kind of swallows it and eats them. Brilliant. And then because all the traffic's going that way, it's not really affecting anything else. And it's a great way of just completely subsuming an entire botnet um the probably most prominent example that i can think of would have been WannaCry. cry i want to say that thing that ripped through the nhs because they're on knackered old versions of windows um mm. and one security researcher malwarebite, marcus hutchins who also had lots of trouble with the police and the fbi and various other things definitely go look him up because he's, he's a very funny guy um and yeah hell of a story there but he worked out what was going on with it and it was calling out to a server and he just registered a domain and all the traffic went over there instead brilliant so it just stopped it dead that's kind of what a honeypot is it's just a way of of attracting all the traffic over and stopping it dead we like that um madpot i don't know why they've called it that but they have um, and they've just kind of gone here's the tool that we use. Here's the things that we've um, kind of seen and stopped with it. Here's the intelligence. Here's how a whole bunch of um, nasty IP addresses that we've got and so on and so on and so on. Um, And they've spoken about in this article in particular, another great name, Sandworm just makes me think of June. There we go. (laughs) Um, Which is tied to a, a, a Russian military intelligence unit. Uh, that was compromising various sort of routers and things to um, subsume them into routers. routers you've, gone, but... you've
0: gone full American pronunciation today, mm. haven't you, with, with router?
1: Uh, I, well, the thing is, I've got a router, the wood kind, in, in the cupboard over there. So it's like, okay. Um, in in yes. England,
0: that is the only kind. Mm. <laughs> the other thing is called a router.
1: Yes, quite. <laughs> but whatever. Um, and yeah, looking at uh, that botnet, and they managed to... Take that down entirely because they had here's all the IP addresses it's coming from, and they can break the whole thing up. So this is this is interesting. I mean, just for the name, if nothing else, but it's it's here's a thing that aws have been um, kind of using and maintaining internally. Here's what it looks like. Let's talk about it.
0: And here's some major international uh, intergovernment espionage that it's uh, has identified, uh, and hopefully uh, helped to, uh, to to prevent. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, But let's move on to our final article this week, which is also security-themed but uh, somewhat closer to home uh, for your average AWS user. Um, This is an article on CIO Dive entitled, AWS Kicks Off Cloud Race to Mandate MFA by Default, MFA, of course, being Multi-Factor Authentication. And uh, if you read any news about AWS, you'll have seen it. Uh, I I picked this particular article from CIO Dive because it was the first one that I saw, but it's just been everywhere. The whole uh, IT press has been talking about this in the last week or so. Um, So uh, what's so significant about this, John?
1: Well, there's nothing particularly significant about this as an article, because as you say, it's been kind of doing the rounds. What it's doing is it's doing something that AWS have been doing generally with other things, and it's moving the needle on default security. So they've done this before with not MFA, but with like uh, S3 bucket encryption by default and EBS encryption and those kinds of things. Well, they've just started, excuse me, turning things on by default rather than waiting for the customer to go off and do it because they've moved the needle a little bit. And whilst AWS are responsible for security of the cloud and you're responsible for security in the cloud as the customer, that's where the line is, they seem to be not transgressing, but pushing a little bit into helping you make the correct or or more secure decisions in the cloud, just by moving that needle a little bit. What this is doing is it's going to enforce MFA on your root user. Now, that's very important because the root user is functionally god. You basically can't restrict it. it. It walks all over permission boundaries. The only way you can restrict it is through a service control policy from the organization level. And then even then, you can't apply SCPs to the management account in an organization. So there's still one account in your room that you can't restrict at all with the root user. So yeah, it's, it's, it's good that they're starting to do this. I mean, you've always been able to do it. You've been able to do it for years and years and years because you create an AWS account, you get a root user, that's the first user. And then what they tell you to do is set MFA on it, lock the credentials away, make IAM users, or these days set up an organization and make IAM IDC users, and then never use Root again. The only time you need to use Root is for a couple of very specific account-level things. I think it's just like the account name and the Root email, and that's about it. Like even billing, you don't need Root user for. You do need it to turn on, allow other people to look at it, because there's a little checkbox that you have to be as root to say, let I am users look at billing. But once you've done that, you basically don't need the root user anymore. Brilliant. So this is just enforcing part of that process. It's an interesting one, though. And I'm just going to talk to it a little bit. Because whilst it's best practice to make sure that you do have MFA enabled, certainly within your, the majority of your organization, I would argue that it's best practice to set an SCP to deny the root user from being used. Can't do that in every account but where you can mfa should be pointless because you shouldn't be able to use it
0: fair enough but i guess it's one less best practice check we need to worry about because it's often one of the first things that gets flagged up isn't it no mfa mm. on the root user account um, so uh, yeah the yeah, only
1: but... concern i've got with this and it's it's more of a logistical problem than a concern i suppose is when you create an account through aws organizations it has a root user because every account has to, but that root user doesn't have a password by default. You have to go and reset the password and then log in and then set MFA and secure the creds away. If you're looking at an organization the size of which like your oil and gas or your banks or whatever will be using, that's tens of thousands of accounts that are going to have to be dealt with by default where previously you could have just set an SCP and ignored it.
0: Hmm. What you mean they're going to have to go through and set up MFA on every single one mm. of those? Yeah.
1: It depends yeah. on the view that the security team took, whether they go, we will comply with CIS benchmarks, or whether they go, that check's a little bit silly because we've just blocked the user from being used entirely.
0: Mm. Yeah, interesting one. I hadn't thought that. Uh, mm. could, uh, could create a bit of work for people who've ignored that particular best practice check. Um, so... Uh, yeah, let's see if we find anyone in that position. Um, but that, uh, unfortunately, brings us to the end of our time for this week. So uh, thank you, as always. I've got it in there, John, uh, for your your insights. It's been so long. Um, it's stopped being funny now. I, I actually keep hearing the word, as always, on pretty much every other radio show and podcast <laughs> that, I, that I listen to. I just kind of I'm, – I'm conscious of it. I try not to say it, but I'm just hearing it everywhere. And I kind of think, well, if everyone else says it, then – It's okay for me to say
1: it. (laughs) Was that a presence bias, I think?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, So uh, anyway, that does bring us to the end of Season 2, Episode 36 of LogiCast. Uh, Why is there a thumbs-up appearing on your... I don't know. Now, I thought that was a Microsoft Teams feature, but apparently not. It must be a webcam software feature. I don't know. What, where Where is that coming from? I apologize if you're listening um, to the podcast. You won't be able to see the little thumbs-up animation that is appearing on John's screen when he actually puts his thumb up in front of his webcam. So that's one for us to uh, to go away and figure out after the podcast. Uh, but uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for watching. Uh, oh, John has literally made it rain. So uh, if you are listening, I encourage you to go and look at the video version of the podcast on YouTube to see John Make it rain at the end of season two, episode 36 of LogiCast. So thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week uh, with uh, more deep dive into the AWS news. We'll see you again next time. Cheers.